Welcome to lesson two of our marriage class. We've entitled this class, Breaking Bliss, A Marriage That Glorifies God. Last week, we talked about communication. And if you would like that uh, class, it is online, along with some notes that I published that you can access from our website. I will do the same for the class this morning. And if you're a guest, my name is Al Pino. I'm one of the pastors here at Palm Vista. Thank you for listening. This morning, we want to speak about conflict resolution. Now, I realize this probably only affects about 1% or 2% of the marriages that are listening to this, but just in case, we thought this morning we'd talk about conflicts. And so we want to talk about, number one, that conflicts are to be expected. You'll see that in your notes there. Conflicts are to be expected. Conflicts are inevitable. I love this quote. Conflict in one form or another is inevitable. Why is that? Because we are sinners, and our sin and selfishness are going to be a problem until we get to heaven. On all of our homes, my friends, come floods and winds. Now that's true in the natural, and it's true in the spirit. God does not protect us as Christians from conflict or problems. He doesn't. However, he helps us to walk through them in a manner that glorifies his name. The Bible is replete with examples and scriptures about problems coming and the Lord using those problems to mature us. So what we're saying is this. Success within marriage is not determined by the absence of conflict, but in the manner in which one responds to conflict. So do you hear that? If you're listening digitally, look me in the eyes right now. Look into your device and imagine my eyes staring back at you. Success in your marriage is not determined by the absence of conflict. Don't be discouraged if there is conflict. But success in your marriage is determined by the manner in which you respond to conflict. Conflict is invaluable there in your notes. Why is it invaluable? Because storms test. They prove the quality of what has been built. They prove the quality of your love, husband, your leadership, that that you're able to stand in the midst of conflict and not panic or react angrily. And dear wife, they prove and test your love as a helpmate to your husband and, yes, your submission. That's what the Bible says, that we as men are to lead and that women are, the wives are to submit. And that's a beautiful dance. And that dance is often... (coughs) Most exciting when the music that is being played is of conflict, problems, roofs leaking, cars breaking, children not doing what we would hope they would do. Uh, it, it, that's the music in which we begin to dance, this beautiful dance of the helpmate, of the leader, of the man caring for his wife as Christ cares for the church, as the wife submitting to her husband as the church submits to Christ. Conflict allows us men to display and develop a leadership that is loving, and it allows you, dear wives, to show your respectful sensitivity to your husband's leadership. I know it's hard, but the illustration that I would give is of football, even though I barely watch it, nor am I aware of how poorly the Gators are playing. But... You can practice all day. A quarterback can look great throwing that football. You have the best arm in the world. But I'll tell you what, it's a different matter 
when he's running for his life behind the line and there's 11 other guys on the other side defending him. That's when his mettle is tested. That's when his leadership is tested. That's when the team is tested. And God has formed us that we might reflect and display his love to a watching world. We're all experiencing problems. And he's forming in us the ability to deal with and to manage and overcome problems and to mature in the middle of it. One theologian once said, that if you try to fix the fix that God fixed to fix you, he'll fix another fix to fix you. So your problem isn't what's happening out there. It's not even your spouse and whatever eccentric practice they have that drives you crazy. That's not the problem. The problem is sin and Jesus is our savior. And what he's doing is he's making us into his image. So I believe in your notes, you see key point number one from Ken Sandy. By the way, he wrote a book called The Peacemaker. Peacemaker. Great book. Great book. Great tools to walk through conflict. So Ken Sandy says the following. Conflicts and the time required that it takes to solve them should not be taken as an, quote, inconvenience or an occasion to get some personal advantage, but as an opportunity to demonstrate the presence and power of God. In our weakness, right? He's glorified. Paul said, I boast in my weakness. Listen, in our marriages sometimes, conflicts just come from our weaknesses. I'm not good at something. And that's what, that's what gets tested, right? Will I then help and support and cover my spouse, or will I try to beat them up over their weakness because it's irritating to me? Conflict is, reveals those kinds of things. It's an opportunity to complete the Ken Sandy quote, to glorify God, to serve others, and to grow to be like Christ. And then key point number two there in your notes. Regular and intimate communication between husband and wife will decrease the number of problems and will make it possible to manage more effectively the problems that arise. This should motivate us to spend more time talking with one another. Listen to last week's class. So where do conflicts originate? Well, the Bible says that they originate not with the person, not with the situation, but they originate in our hearts. Many of you are familiar with this text, but turn in your Bibles to James 4.1. James 4.1. James 4.1. James is a beautiful book. James is writing to a church under pressure. James is talking about what it looks like to be like Jesus. James, James is a great practical pastoral book. Uh, marinate in that book, and it will... It will produce a beautiful, tender heart. But James 4.1 gives us the reason for conflicts. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Spirit says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Amen. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves... Therefore, to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning 
and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The Bible talks about conflicts originating from our passions there in this text, our desires that are in our heart. Our heart is confronted with disappointment at not having what we want, our desires. Therefore, our heart begins to war against the other person because we're not getting what we feel like we deserve or what we little by little begin to demand. The demand comes from a heart that really is covetous. He talks about adulterous people here. That's always, always phraseology in the Bible that speaks of idolatry. So we have these idols in our heart, and our heart demand what they want. And sometimes they're really good things. A wife wants to be loved by a husband. Absolutely. The desire isn't the idol, but you have made that desire your God. Now it's become idolatrous. The husband wants to be respected. Absolutely. He doesn't want to be nitpicked about everything he does. He walks in, he wants a wife to just say, Hello, dear husband, I love you so much. Thank you for serving me. And if he gets anything less, he can often withdraw or react. The problem isn't that he wants respect. That's biblical. He can quote Ephesians 5 all day to his wife. He would be right in the quote, but he would be wrong in his angry heart because he's taken respect and made it his functional God. And if he doesn't get it, then he's not going to love her. And she says, well, if you're not going to love me, I'm not going to respect you. Right? It's an eye for an eye problem with eye for an eye is we all end up blind. That kind of justice just doesn't work. You only have two eyes after they're gone, and that's what happens. We're stumbling around in the darkness. She won't give me what I want. I'm not going to give her what she wants. But we forget about God. We forget about this text that says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He gives greater grace. How does that grace come? I'm not sure if this is in your notes. But it starts with being more aware that we are sinners than that someone has sinned against us. This is under the conflict inevitable, or where do conflicts originate? If it's not there, just make a mental note here. So it starts with being more aware of my sin than of their sin. That 1 Timothy 1.15 passage that here at Palm Vista we're very familiar with. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. We keep our perspective of Matthew 18. Remember that story at the end of Matthew 18 with the unforgiving servant? We are more aware. Friends, this is where the battle is. Are you more aware of your debt toward God or others' debt toward you? Right? We can just flip-flop that. We can be that servant who's forgiven millions by this king, but when his fellow servant, who owes him a significant amount of money, if you go do the math on that, the guy owes him a lot of money. But it's far less than what he owed the king, and he was forgiven. But we find ourselves with our hands around each other's necks, just shaking each other. Give me what I want, even though God has forgiven me when I don't give him what he deserves. So we we practice healthy reflection. We practice a healthy looking at our own motives more than the motives of others. The reality of the presence of sin in our lives compels us to maintain an attitude of vigilance and continuously fight against it. And therefore, we are merciful because we are more aware of God's mercy than we are of judgment. The Bible talks about this, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Absolutely. Praise God that mercy triumphs over judgment. We must first suspect our own motives before we suspect their motives. Look, their motives may be suspicious, 
But if we focus on their motives and we fail to look at our motives, then what are we doing? Instead of taking the log out of our eye before we look at the speck out of someone else's eye, we are gouging their eyes out. Listen, this also, this scripture and James helps us realize that circumstances do not cause sin in us, but rather reveal it. And conflict is a beautiful way. It's like an x-ray to find out, what is it that I really want? When, when I'm arguing with Desi, I, I don't always do this. I want to do it more. But it's always helpful to, at some point, try to stop hyperventilating, metaphorically speaking, or whatever we're doing, and just say, what do I want that I'm not getting right now? That's a good question to ask. Ask it of yourself first. What do I want that I'm not getting So when we regularly practice this, we confess our sins to God, we confess our sins to one another. Man, that's the beginning. That's the beginning. So where does the resolution of conflict begin in your notes? Where does the resolution of conflict begin? Well, it begins with the changed heart. It begins in true repentance. And and, and true repentance is, is obtained humbly with God's help. That passage in James, when it says, but he gives a greater grace... That's what it's talking about. That's what it's talking about. There's grace for the humble. You know this, right? I mean, intuitively, we all know this. You can yell and scream. You can do cold warfare. You can not talk for three weeks. You can do whatever it is you do, however you wage war. But isn't it true? The moment somebody kind of goes low, just gets a little low, humbles themselves, acknowledges, instead of making their point, says, honey, let me hear your point. Yeah, you're right. It, something begins to soften. I mean, Scripture says that, right? In Proverbs, all over the place, a harsh word stirs up strife, but the humble <coughs> help resolve it. I love, I love the passage there in Timothy. It says, speaking to elders, but in 2 Timothy 2.25, 2 Timothy 2.25. Now, it's, this is speaking of leaders, but I think this, this applies to all of us, where it says, with meekness, correct those that, are, that oppose, that if perhaps God grants that they should repent to know the truth and escape from the snare of the devil who, who, capti- who, is, who has captured them. Uh, humility doesn't mean we don't help each other see where we need to change, but it's, it's all involved in the attitude of the heart, the graciousness. It is God who gives us the grace for us to come to our senses, Right? Now it comes by repentance so that we might escape from the snare of the enemy. This is where if you have serious conflict in an area that's really been a hard one for you as a couple, I would invite you, ask someone to help you. Ask them to come in. Don't go diving into other people's marriages. That is unwise. <laughs> but let me tell you, if your marriage needs help, you go ask somebody and say, look, in this one area, we just need some help here to come to our sense. We need someone to help light a light a match, a candle, a flashlight, or turn the light on in the room in this area. I know that Desi and I have had that uh, early on. Uh, finances, boy, that's a tough time for us. And I know that there have been couples, the smidgens, many, many years ago, just helped us walk through it. Just recently, this Financial Peace University has, has it's funny, I thought we were good, and then the Financial Peace University has you ask a question of your spouse on the scale of one to 10, how anxious are you about your long-term finances? So we were driving to Naples, I think on a little date, on a little weekend date. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm like, I had a two, man, no debt. We're doing well. Yeah, I didn't quite save over the last 30 years like I wanted to. But, you know, we're good. I said, how about you, Desi? 
You know, and this little quiet voice from the passenger seat, oh, about a nine. That was a two-dayer. You ever had a two-dayer? <laughs> you wake up, you know, half your clothes on in a gutter somewhere, metaphorically speaking. Uh, you know, two-day binge there. But at the end of two days, I, I thanked God that even though I thought we were really good there, we needed some, we had some work to do. So I had a choice. Do I humble myself? say, thank you, Jesus, for my wife, who is being honest with me. And she humbled herself. There were areas she she would tell you that she was not seeing clearly. She was maybe panicking a little bit. But do I humble myself and receive grace and and have God give me what I need in this area so I can care for my wife? Or do I sit there and get all huffy and puffy and say, okay, I have to provide it for you. Right, we're all there, right? You're there, I'm sure, on, on an issue or two, or three, or five. (laughs) By the way, that's another point. Take them one at a time. Don't go all five. You know, husband, if she's not being intimate like you want her to be intimate, wife, if he's not caring for you and talking to you like you would like to be spoken to, and the finances are a problem, and the kids, who's going to discipline the kids? You know, don't, don't, don't try to hit them all at once. Pray. Say, baby, can, can we work on one for months? And then trust God. He'll, he'll help you with the other ones, right? But God, help me on this one. Show me how I can go low. How can This is all about you, not about me. Because ultimately, my friends, when, when we stand before our Savior, it, He's going to want to know, how were how you as a wife, ladies? You can point at your husband all day long. And we've got plenty to be pointed at. But he's going to be asking you, how, how, how did you do? Men, you, you, can, you can make your case with God for a while about how she's not this or that and how she disrespects you and how she blah, 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 blah. But he's going to be asking you, but did you love her? Did you reflect Christ in this situation? Did you love her? I love 2 Corinthians 7.10. This is a good one. Probably a good time to bring in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Because the sorrow that is according to God works repentance to salvation, of which there is no repentance. In other words, you don't have to repent of that one. But the sorrow of the world produces death. At this point, if, I, I want to ask you this question. Where is your sorrow? Because we all have sorrow in our marriages. Is it a godly sorrow? Study 2 Corinthians 7.10. Or is it a worldly sorrow? I would say a worldly sorrow focuses on what you're not getting, how you're not happy. And if, and if you chase that one down the street, uh, that's the one that leads people to divorce. And that's a word we should never use in our marriages. Because if it becomes all about me not being happy, I would say that is a worldly sorrow. But a godly sorrow is God leading you to himself, that James 4, so that you cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. That's sorrow, but it's a godly sorrow because who does it leads us to God? Worldly sorrow leads us to me and Dr. Phil and all the junk that the world says to do to be happy or manipulate your spouse. Godly sorrow leads us to God, and that's my prayer for all of you. Conflict must be resolved. There in your notes, conflict must be resolved. 
We've already talked about this. Again, I'm not sure if it's in the notes, but before looking for solutions, there are four fundamental things under conflict must be resolved. Number one, take responsibility for your own actions. Number two, remove the log out of your own eye. Number three, confess your sin. And number four, ask for forgiveness and forgive. Let me slow down there. Conflict must be resolved. You see that in the notes? Conflict must be resolved? All right. So if you, we've already talked about this, but this sort of formalizes this process. Number one, take responsibility for your own action. Number two, remove the log out of your own eye. Matthew 7, 1, Sermon on the Mount. Remove the log out of your own eye. Number three, confess your sin. Confess your sin. And number four, ask for forgiveness. And forgive in advance. Man, uh, another walk that we were taking recently, and, and Desi, we take these walks in the morning. We spoke about that last week. And it wasn't against her, but it was against someone else. And Desi just looked at me and said, you're just not forgiving. And she was right. I had talked myself into, right, all the things I was being discerning. <laughs> Don't you love that one? Uh, yeah, no. And she just helped me see it. I just thought, oh, Lord, forgive me. You've forgiven me so much. Forgiveness doesn't mean you sweep it underneath the rug. No, sir. No, ma'am. It means that you forgive, and then you're able to talk about it. Take the log out of your own eye so that you can take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. All right, rules for resolving conflicts. Rules for resolving conflicts. Rules for resolving conflicts. Uh, Number one in your notes, decide to understand. Decide to understand. So rules for resolving conflicts, you see that there? You can just jot these down. Decide to understand. Men, the, the biggest passage for this, is it not 1 Peter 3? Right? First Peter 3, men, decide to understand. What does that say? Live with your wife in an understanding manner. And what does it say after that? That your prayers may not be hindered. Wow. Wow. That's a big one. We talked about this last week in Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18. A fool just wants to make someone else understand them. A wise man or woman seeks to understand. You see the difference? In an argument, if I'm just trying to make my point and beat you into submission verbally, I'm a fool. But if I'm trying to understand, help me understand. Next, decide to keep calm. Yes, all those t-shirts. It's great to have the t-shirt, but it's better to live it. Decide to keep calm. I love Proverbs 14 where it says that a harsh word stirs up strife. Decide to keep calm. Yeah, that's a big one. Right? James 1.19. James 1.19. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Oh, Lord, help me. We all know when we're about to launch, right? Each of us has a tell when they're about to launch. Some of it it's the vein popping out of the neck. The other one, the eyes start twitching. Some people, their noses begin to flare, you know? Uh, they get up and they start pacing. Okay, launch is about to happen. Don't. Walk away for a while. Keep calm. Men, guide the conversation. God, your, our wives are incredible women. They're beautiful. They're, they're divine creatures. Not divine literally, but they're, they're, they're beautiful. 
They're so perceptive. Love her. Treasure her. Help her. She's going to probably be able to define this thing better than you. Don't get offended. Guide her. Draw her out. As I mentioned before, treat one issue at a time. This is another one that I'm not good at. Listen without interrupting. Listen without interrupting. Each couple is different. There may, one of you just needs to dump for a while. That's helped me. That's helped me. Because, you know, they're dumping and they're talking. And there's 15 things out of the 42 that are being said that you know. Oh, that's not true. Oh, that's not true. Oh, that's not true. Just resist the temptation of, of interrupting. You, you'll get there eventually. But just listen. Listen. Does your spouse feel like you listen? Ask him. Ask him. Ask him. Yeah, and then don't use your words to wound. I believe you have in your notes key point three. Yes, key point three. Okay. Consider the effects of your words. Some people use words. Key point three there in the notes. See them there? Okay. Some people use their words to wound. Don't do that. Like the thrust of a sword is how Proverbs says. Use life-giving words. Again, I believe that's key point four. Use life-giving words. Proverbs speaks of that in Proverbs 15.1. And then decide to forgive and not bring up the past. Decide to forgive and not bring up the past. Decide to forgive and not bring up the past. Matthew 18, at the end, is this wonderful, wonderful story that Jesus tells. It ends in a very sober note. If you don't forgive, neither will I forgive you. That is pretty serious. The Lord's Prayer has that. And then, of course, decide to seek help if you can't receive reconciliation. All right, so how do we have an argument? Right? You see that in your notes? How to have an argument? Well, here's how you have it. You're going to have an argument. All right? This isn't a class that prevents you from having an argument. Uh, You're going to have an argument. I would say the first way you help to handle an argument is to bring things up before they build up in tension. The best defense against an argument is to talk about things in a timely manner. Make sure that your communication is regular, particularly around sensitive issues. For years, I would avoid talking about finances. For years, Desi would tell you that she inappropriately wouldn't bring it up. So our sins would be, I am the talker, I'm the more aggressive one. She would be the one that would withhold things in her heart, and they would become uh, bitter. She would become bitter in her heart, so that when we finally do talk about finances, driving to Naples for our wonderful weekend away, and I ask, thinking everything's okay, because she hasn't said anything for a long time, uh, and she says nine, there we go. And it got ugly, because there was just a lot of stuff in her, right? One of my kids just had their wisdom teeth out, and it got infected, (laughs) and she she was telling me what the doc did. He had to lance it and then squeeze it to get all the pus out. That is ouch, isn't it? It's even more ouch when that's in our souls over an issue in our lives because we haven't spoken about it. Walk in the light is what Scripture talks about. So it's, it's hard, and the bigger that thing gets, the more, you know, and then suddenly people go, do you realize you have this big thing on your face? No, 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 it's fine. Our finances are fine. It's, it's red and ugly. and No, we're good. And then someone bumps into it, usually your spouse, and psh, that's good. It's better if you lance it early. 
if an argument begins, the first thing to realize, the first thing to realize is, hey, things are getting out of control. So again, this is a bit of a review. How do we how do we get back into control? Okay. Well, recognize and admit your your error first. You, you have error in this. You be the first one to recognize and admit it. Confess your faults. Ask for forgiveness where you can. Forgive your partner. These are all scriptures we've been talking about. This is that James 4. And then in James 5, it speaks of forgiveness. Forgive your partner. It's that Matthew 18. At the end of that chapter, the, uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Desire peace and unity above your own pain. Desire peace and unity above your own pain. This this. This applies across the board in our marriages, but also in your parenting. Our kids can bring some serious pain. But I, I, wanna, I want peace, and that means biblical peace and unity above my own pain. I, I don't want to just vent that I'm angry at you and you've caused me pain. Lord, I, I, I want to see peace. This is what the Lord did for us. And remember this, that your spouse is your brother or your sister in the Lord. Treat them as such. Back to that 1 Peter 3 passage. Great passage, by the way. 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. There, she's a fellow heir with you. That means that she's the Lord's. So treat her well. After you regain control, evaluate what happened. This is what Desi and I did with that uh, argument we had about finances. We said, how'd we get there, right? We went back to the intersection where the accident happened. And we tried to figure out, how did we get there? Just the other day, I was driving with Joe. We went out and had some lunch together. And in my neighborhood, there's a series of stop signs. And I was stopped at one stop sign, about to make a left onto this road. And there was a stop sign. And normally, I'm pretty aggressive when I drive. I know that might shock some of you. But I saw this car coming. And for some reason, I I chose to wait. And this sweet lady, just nice car, nice Mercedes, just blew that stop sign. I mean, doing like 35. And Joe was like, well, I mean, it would have hit Joe right there. and I said, you know, Joe, I just, I just had the sense to, still, to not go. So, so when, when I, if I would have gotten an accident, I would have gone back to that stop sign. I would have analyzed what did I did, what did we do wrong? How did we get here? Where did we speed up that we should have slowed down? Where did, how did we get into this argument? When you're calm, dissect it. It's like watching film on a horrible defeat to Michigan, 33 to 17. Today, they're looking at the film. How did that happen? It's painful, but we got to figure it out. Uh, discuss the issue that started the argument. Pray together. Express affection for one another. Listen, this is huge, okay? This is not being fake. The physical expression of your affection will help to drive out residual negative feelings such as estrangement and coldness. And although usually after an argument you may have no desire for hugging and kissing, do it by faith. Seriously. God gave that as a gift. I know at times it's hard. Ask God for the grace. Be affectionate, even when you don't feel it. It's funny. Sometimes the feelings will follow. It is by faith. All right, finally, the conflict should bear fruit. The conflict should bear fruit. It should develop character in us. Um, I, I love this truth. Many people have said it, that our spouses are God's main instrument to affect character change and conform us to the image of Christ. He says he's going to do that in Romans 8.29. And the person you're seated with right now in the class, or who you lay down next to every night, 
is often the main instrument for that. Respect your spouse. Consider their point of view. Recognize that they are the one who knows you the best and before whom you can't put on appearances or be fake. We spoke about that last week. Spoke about that last week. The effort you make to change in these areas of your life that are revealed by your spouse produce fruit for the glory of God. That's the end point. The glory of God. And it leads to more intimacy. If both of you try to solve the problem, asking for forgiveness, deciding to change, guarding against bitterness, then the conflict will produce greater closeness. Desi and I love each other dearly. We are not perfect. But there is more intimacy after having had those conflicts, particularly recently on the finance issue. There is. We don't want to just be polite strangers. Oh, we never argue. But it's because we play spiritual bumper cars. Oh, that's a tender issue. No, let's avoid it. That's, no. What happens to people like that is 25, 30 years later, they look at each other and say, I don't even know you. I see how happy you are with other people. I see how you express yourself everywhere else, even with our children. Now that their kids go, who are you? Well, fight against that. Be real with one another, but with grace. Don't let even the slightest residue of resentment, pain, bitterness, doubt, distrust, disunity, coldness remain. Here's one. The conflict does not end until all these things are resolved. And again, I think that our wives are wonderful barometers of this. (laughs) Men, we, we can typically, now it's not always the same in every marriage, But typically, men, we can compartmentalize to a degree that we can be in a really, really ugly fight and ready to make love five minutes later. Now, ladies, there is a time where where that is something that you do after you've resolved it to a certain point. Please hear that. Not to use your bodies as a weapon to get back at your husband. But guys, sometimes we just don't get it. And our wives are, are looking at us saying, I love you, sweetheart, but this thing isn't resolved yet. I know for me, I, I, the, great, the funny question for Des, hey, Des, anything wrong? She'll say no, and as I'm walking away, I'll hear her say, not really. <laughs> of course, I don't want to hear that because I just want to resolve it, right? We just want to fix it. We want to fix the sink that is leaking. We want to fix the roof that is leaking. We want to fix the car. What we don't want is get in the car after we fixed it, and as we turn the corner, we hear the same sound again. <laughs> well, but this is your wife. This is your husband. This is your marriage. This is the gospel. And so have, there's grace to hang in there. So what I want to do is I want to pray for you. Uh, on the back of your notes, there's homework. Listen, if that helps you, I think, or the second page there, if that helps you, great. If not, don't worry about it. It's just, it's a tool, all right? But can I pray for you? Because I am aware that some of you are sitting there thinking, oh, Al, I feel like one of those flood victims in Houston. We were sitting in our living room, and the next thing you know, we were floating out the front door. I actually saw time-lapse photography. Actually, it wasn't time-lapse of a garage, like, filling in, like, in five or ten minutes. Literally, they just, it, it was amazing. And a lot of people, they were just, they, they were in their home. Everything was fine. Next thing you know, they're climbing on their roof. Uh, and you can feel like that. You can feel underwater in your marriage. God is committed to your marriage. Jesus Christ died for that sin. He wants you to be conformed to his image. He will conform you, Christian, and that's your marriage, the most intimate relationship on earth. He cares about it. 
Last week we preached this. He has those flaming eyes, but those eyes are not there to condemn us, but to help us. Yes, there's some surgery. Yes, there's going to be some correctives. He's going to, he's going to diagnose the illness, but then he's going to prescribe. He's going to prescribe the remedy so that your marriage can be a marriage that glorifies God. And I just want to pray for you right now. So just bow your heads. Let's pray. Lord, I'm aware that when we speak of conflict, that's difficult. There are some who experience conflict whether it's the hot war or the cold war, almost every day of their marriage. There's a tension that some women live with that just is giving them ulcers. Their their, their stomachs are in a knot. They're afraid to say anything. Some husbands are are always walking around on eggshells because they just don't know. Something's wrong. There's a coldness. There's a lack of physical intimacy. There's a sarcasm that can pervade a home and and there's weeping and tears. Lord, I pray that you would com- communicate to, to everyone listening that, that you have been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, that you're a merciful, great high priest, that Hebrews 4, uh, 12 to 16 speaks of this throne of grace, that there's grace for those who humble themselves. So Lord, even now I pray, give grace to marriages. May we be lighthouses for the gospel. May we live the good of Ephesians 5, Genesis 2. Oh, Lord, Lord, for your glory, but yes, also for our good. For your name's sake. Lord, hear our cry for your name's sake. No, we don't deserve it, but for your name's sake. Because you are a merciful God. Because you give us steadfast love. Thank you, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.